Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. Okay, so have I ever told you about the difference between a good movie and a great movie? I'm interested. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple of examples okay. of what I think are great movies, okay, but that are not good movies. Oh, okay. okay. I, I, I'm already very intrigued. <laughs> Mortal Kombat is my favorite. Example. Mortal Kombat, yes, from the 90s, the 90s version? The 1990s. Okay. Not the reboot, although the reboot, I think, would probably qualify as well, right? It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> okay. Time to explain. I don't think it needs any explanation. Oh, I haven't seen the movie, so... Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it, but it's fantastic. It's the most dumbest, like, fighty-fighty that ever fighty-fightied. Right. I wonder if you can come up with an example that you have seen. Um, I recently rewatched Buckets of Blood, which is a Roger Corman 1960s horror movie about a guy who makes sculptures from people he kills. Perfect. It's it's not really very good. But is it great? But I love it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you see. And um, Buckets of Blood. Isn't there like a, isn't that a British like phrase? Like Buckets of like. Oh, you know, Maybe. You know, pig's teeth and buckets of blood. It should be. Something like that. Um, combat. Yes. Oh, hey. Wow. <laughs> there you go. I told you I had an intro. And it wasn't good. But maybe It was we'll, great. We'll let other people decide that. <laughs> Today we're talking... Um, you know, I wish we were... I wish that we were talking about combat in the pre-existence. Um, yes. I was, when I first started reading the intro to our article today, Shards of Combat. You were anticipating more fist fighty fighty. I as was you put anticipating it. fisty fighty fighty fisticuffs. Um, Mortal Mortal Combat. Shards of Combat. <laughs> <laughs> How did Satan seek to destroy the agency of man by Philip L. Barlow? The most recent article in the BYU Studies Journal that we're covering. Not as much combat as I hoped. No, uh, sort of overlooks that entirely. I think there was one sentence where one person spe- said that it was a war of ideas yeah. or ideologies and it's... not... <sighs> but that was it. Have you seen Warrior Nun on Netflix? No. It's just... It's, it's <laughs> so, so... Wait, is that about the, so the Spanish woman who went to Chile and... Wow. I don't know about that. Oh, okay. No, it's not. It's right. about a woman who becomes like a super fighter... Because of this disc that gets embedded in her back. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is not that, historical fiction. No, <laughs> I think I'd call it Catholic fiction. Fiction. Okay. I don't know if There's that's a the pretty right. good tradition of Catholic fiction, and it's very fighty fighty. Yeah, it's great. And you know what about like um, the show uh, Lucifer? One of my favorites. I haven't seen that either. Okay, that one's about um, you know it's about psychology, which is probably not what you would have expected. I've seen, I remember seeing commercials for it because it started back in the days when I still saw television commercials. It's fantastic. Um, the, one of the best parts about the show Lucifer is the fact that he has a therapist. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is really good because of that. And yeah, I mean, the whole idea of combat between angels and devils, um, it's, it's really... It's a nice tradition. It's a good tradition. Yeah. And I think it derives from some of these books that are cited right at the, be, right at the um, beginning, right? Yeah. Um, here we go. Gods, angels, or other celestial beings rebelled against their superiors or engaged in a cosmic conflict. Right? Which is, you know, so we've got all these all these um, allusions to this in Babylon, Egypt, Israel, Persia, Greece, Rome. Yes. Um, Homer, s- Virgil. 
Yes, other like Sufi. All the way up to Milton. Which is Muslim, Iblis rebellion against Allah, right? Yeah. It's kind of this big tradition, and it goes all the way through one of your favorite books that you've mentioned before, Paradise Lost. I, it seems unfair to call it a favorite of mine, but um, I do like talking about it. Okay. Um, so I have to confess, I don't think I've ever read Paradise Lost. Find me a living English speaker who's read all of Paradise Lost. Uh, uh, like, can you um, just tell me about it a little bit? Sure. It is essentially um, the plan of salvation. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a war in heaven. Uh, Satan wants to, well, Lucifer, I suppose, the son of the morning. Mm -hmm. He wants to take over heaven. He gets cast out with all his devils. There's a fun scene in hell where all the demons are described. He, uh, meanwhile... F fun? Oh, fun? Yes, like lots of lots of really vivid baroque descriptions of hell okay uh then it goes to well we're going to create people uh -huh. so the creation of the earth and the creation of the garden of eden we put two people in it they're uh, a very mormon adam and eve in my opinion um they're kind of charming and fun and really stupid so very <laughs> in keeping with the endowment uh presentation of adam and eve uh satan Interesting characterization. Yes. Satan gets the serpent to tempt them, and they get thrown out. And in Milton's opinion, well, Milton had a lot of opinions, but one of Milton's opinions of what his purpose was, was to set up the sequel, Paradise Regained, which, have you heard of Paradise Regained? You know, only because you might have mentioned it before on the yeah, show. Yeah, because it's boring, because it doesn't have this exciting Satan character in it, but it's uh -huh. about Jesus. So it's that's the real point. But okay. So yeah, it is. like There's a fall, and uh, Adam and Eve made the right decision so that, you know, the Savior could come. It's, is, it's is, a pretty Mormon spin. Did you say that there was... A couple hundred years before Joseph Smith. There was combat, though? There is combat, yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it good? Like, is it riveting? Well, as I said, <laughs> I don't really enjoy reading Milton. <laughs> but for those who enjoy reading Milton, the answer is yes. You know, I have to confess that I have a real um, soft spot for... Um, like really good organized battles mm -hmm. in fantasy or science fiction literature. This is very influential. I mean, okay. one of Milton's other goals for himself was to create a national epic for England because England didn't have one like the Aeneid or the oh. Iliad or something. Okay. And England is supposed to be a Christian nation, so he makes mm -hmm. a Christian epic. Yeah. Um, so he is trying to do that. And... Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that Milton was influential on a lot of, like, early fantasy. Like, it's it's difficult to imagine that Tolkien was not influenced by Milton. Not to say that there you can draw direct lines, but there had been influence there. Yeah, Tolkien famously did not want direct lines drawn anywhere near his right. books. Right. Yeah, he, he was not big into allegory. But, but there's no question that he had read Milton and was familiar with him. And um, it's difficult to imagine that Milton didn't have a huge influence on the first generation of, of like, modern fantasy. Well, I have to say, um, I was, I'm was i being a bit silly earlier when I was saying I was disappointed in the combat just because I thought it was a funny way to frame it. Um, the thesis of this article is excellent, and it's actually one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I, I really liked this article. I especially liked the last couple sections, which uh -huh. is where I wanted to spend most of our time. But we have to talk about the two theories and all that. But okay. to me, the ending was... Really brilliant. Okay, great. I want to talk Good about that Good job, Barlow. Too. Good job, Philip Barlow. So, agency is probably... So, this the article, the article launches yeah. in with the assumption that you are familiar with the concept of agency. But, 
I think agency is just on its own, if not a difficult concept, at least something worth defining up front. Right. I mean, the way you, the way Lucifer's plan to overcome agency works requires a certain understanding of agency. Um, and, and that gets to our two, the two main theories that people have about what this means for yeah. him to overcome our agency. And um, as is pointed out, the first one, which is the most common one, um, has some logical flaws. And so... Okay, so let's at least just state that up front. We're going to, if, you ha- if we have kind of a guide as to where we're going in the show, we're going to talk about agency itself. Now, Satan had a plan to get rid of agency, and that's kind of what the thesis of the article is about. Like, what does that even mean? Right. Okay? And then there's lots of interesting ideas at the end. So that's kind of that's kind of where we're going. But I want to make sure to also note that one of the theses of the author is that this isn't just philosophy that we're and theology that we're discussing. That where you go with an understanding of this doctrine, right? Mm-hmm directly impacts how you interact with other people and live on a day-to-day basis, like what kind of things you prioritize in religion and even in politics. And this observation of Barlow's is why I think this article is brilliant and really maybe important for people to read and think about right now. Yeah. So this is great stuff. So let's go through the theology and the philosophy, which is fantastic. And then let's dwell a bit on the the implications, um, the implications of, of it of believing one or another of these options. Okay, so um, I have give have I given the water the whirlpool thing? I did the whirlpool thing before, right? Uh, I don't remember. I think you said Wordlepool. Not Wordle. Not Wordlepool. <laughs> I follow you on Twitter. I know you enjoy Wordle. I do enjoy Wordle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's a. It's a. Uh, I know I've said this before. It's entirely possible. We have multiple seasons now. We, we have find people seasons. who are not who are not completists. Okay, um, <laughs> such as myself, apparently. <laughs> Agency is likened unto a person walking on the beach. Okay, and this is a description given in Gospel Doctrine, mm-hmm. one of the original manuals for kind of new people to the church. Yeah. Um, in this analogy, the person walking on the beach encounters a sign. And that sign says, no swimming, comma, whirlpool. And the person could react in a couple of different ways. The person could react and say, this is unfair because it infringes upon my rights and upon my freedoms. Right? Yeah. Okay. But in reality, that person is free to make lots of other choices besides swimming, right? Sure. They could walk along the beach. They could collect seashells. They could build a sound castle. They could go home. But they're also free to exercise their agency to choose and ignore the sign. Yes. But once they do, and they're caught in the whirlpool, they have many fewer choices. Many fewer? They have much fewer choices. They can swim, they can cry from help, but they might drown. Right. No, it's a good it's a good little allegory. And what it is is it's trying to describe that agency is the power to choose your own destiny, and then freedoms and captivity are consequences of those choices. Right. And this comes down 
to the two theories. Like, um, are was Satan interested in removing our choices, or was he interested in removing the effects of our choices? The consequences themselves. Right. So, um, so I actually think this, this, it's like, <laughs> is Satan... <laughs> Re, like I just that's a great way to think about it. So is he removing the whirlpool itself, mm-hmm. <laughs> or is he removing your ability to choose the whirlpool? Yes. Is he an indulgent grandparent or a strict parent? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's be more specific. So okay, agency. Yes. The ability. To, I mean, the ability to choose this feels like a kind of a a pat answer to the definition. Is there a better one? Well, we're being forced, we're being coerced to behave a certain way, and therefore we will be saved. That That's, I think, I, the article suggested, and this is true of my experience, this is the way it is usually described. Satan's plan was to remove our choice. We would all be forced to be good so that we would go to heaven in the end. Is that the way you usually heard it as a person growing up in this faith? Uh, that's essentially what I heard, yeah. yeah. Is that we? W- I mean, the article arg- says that this is kind of the predominant belief. Um, I was actually asking, though, the word agency. Is that a reasonable Oh, yeah, I'm enough? totally satisfied with that. Definitely. Okay. It's sufficient to get us started, if nothing else. So, two, two theories. Okay, so the first point is that, yes, there was this war in heaven. A plan was presented, right? Yes. Um, people chose one plan or the other, and they vigorously debated it <laughs> yes um probably swords were not literally drawn at least if we knew yes. if they were we don't know about that would them. be strange like spirits <laughs> counterintuitive at least we don't know about it and then yeah a third of the host of heaven chose one way and the rest of us chose the other yes and agency was the central point now why do we know that agency was the central point Oh, a little scripture here, a little scripture there. Okay, I like this part of um, language in the Book of Mormon that had roots in other other authors. Yes, right. Oh, like, he invented an excellent he invented an excellent word to describe this: the baroification, Joseph Smith's baroification, rather than translation. Did, did you read that footnote? No, go ahead. Which, so, foot, which footnote is it? Uh, it's footnote number six. Uh-huh. He says, I call this process baroification after Joseph Smith's spelling of the Hebrew word that rests behind the English created in Genesis 1.1. Joseph Smith learned while studying Hebrew that the word means to fashion or to organize rather than to conjure into existence ex nihilo as per traditional Christian belief. Um, similarly, Joseph Smith did the same. In the process of verbal baroifying that sketched the war in heaven, Smith intentionally or incidentally resolved a centuries-old debate about free will in Protestant churches. He was borrowing language uh, used by the people on different sides of this debate and combined it into something that was whole. And that language was specifically the language of acting and being acted upon, right? Yes. And um, the, the language of um, in Moses 4.3, seeking to destroy the agency of man. Yes. These were linguistic formulas, Barlow writes, embedded in the Arminian-slash-reformed debates of the 18th and early 19th centuries. And Joseph Smith baroified those terms into scripture that we have now. And importantly, 
it says here, this was not plagiarism in any modern sense, as you were saying, but intrinsic to his prophetic mode. Yes. One of the theses of this show, right, is yes. that we're believers. <laughs> right. We did a whole episode on translation and what it might mean, and we didn't have this word available to us. Yeah. Don't worry, dear listener. We're not arguing that Joseph Smith made all this up. <laughs> But language is important, and yes. how things are translated are too. And frankly, like any writer knows that using phrasing that pre-exists allows you to tap into... but Those kinds of allusions let you tap into the entire history of an idea. The, the gestalt? Yes. The word in German that says the, the place, the era, and the time of thought. Zeitgeist? The zeitgeist. Sure, yeah. As yeah. it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, whether Joseph Smith, consciously or not, was doing this hardly matters. It's useful, and it, it lets us pull these different thoughts together. I thought that was great. I don't know. I've always loved the phrase, act or be acted upon. It's yes. this, this concept of, are you, a, are, you, are you in control of your own choices or, or not? Um, okay, I love it. Predominant understanding. Go. Predominant understanding is, there was a war in heaven... Jesus was going to let us come to the world as we now know it. Satan's plan was to send us here and then force us all to obey the commandments. So at the end of it, we would come home still holy and worthy to enter into his presence as he was thereby stealing the glory from Heavenly Father. So you would come to earth and you'd be a great person, but not because of any value of your own, but because you were forced to do so. Right. And this is a kind of the predominant view in the church and it has no basis in the scriptures (laughs) am i right in saying that uh well i mean yes i mean and no i mean you know you can proof text it sure but it is not in the scriptures such that you couldn't use the same scriptures to argue it is not in scriptures yeah that's right some things are very clear in the scriptures right Be baptized. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah. Right? Some things are very clear. Some things are are not. And then we just don't know a lot about the war in heaven. Yeah. And it's important. This is our thesis that we're going to come to at the end of the show. But it's important to recognize what we don't know. Yeah. This was this this framing of how Satan would remove our agency through coercion is a derived framing. That did not come directly from pro- from Prophet Joseph Smith, or from not, canonized scripture, or from canonized scripture, but is consistently taught by prophets and apostles throughout the history of the church. And it was the first, maybe, to be useful. Uh, one thing Barlow talks about is how this framing made a lot of sense in a period of time when the church was being forced to behave a certain way by the U.S. government. Yeah, like give up polygamy, please. And so to equate the U.S. government to Satan is a powerful rhetorical tool. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It Essentially, um, our author, Brother Barlow, shall we call him? Sure. Brother Barlow is saying um, that there was a point, was it Oscar Pratt? I can't no, remember. Oscar Pratt. No, President or, Taylor. Oscar Pratt. Orson Pratt. Uh, yeah, but you're not talking about him anyway. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> President Taylor publicly de- declared such a compulsion, I'm quoting here, akin to Satan's rejected scheme in the pre-existence world. Right? That seemed to be the first really clear description of Satan's plan in these terms. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, Brother Barlow said, called him out a little bit on it, saying... Um, 
Satan's agents are not necessarily the the, yeah. the, the U.S. government in the 1880s. I uh, think you would, if you equated the U.S. government with Satan in General Conference today, you would get a different reaction, perhaps, than you did then. And I think, and Bar- and again, our author here was much more careful than I was just now in his language, and I thought he would did a very good job of just pointing it out. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and then simultaneously, should we just jump into the other theory now? I just wanted to, to comment on the primary lesson. Oh, sure. Go I ahead. I thought that was really, really funny. I believe I've read that lesson before. I did not remember reading this lesson. All right? So there's a primary lesson, age 8 to 11, where you tell the children to do it. It's essentially Simon Says. Yeah, it's basically Simon Says, only it's more like Satan Says. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Simon Says. <laughs> yeah, the teacher tells student, the students to do certain things, stare straight ahead, be quiet stand with your feet flat on the floor and they're not allowed to do anything else and you do that basically as long as the students can stand and then ask them how they would feel if their entire life were that way but okay so where's the logical flaw in this argument so the logical flaw is if you are forced to do something then you are not uh, let me just quote it okay so this comes from joseph fielding mcconkie who is um, related to both joseph fielding smith and bruce r mcconkie i was gonna say yes uh you may recognize those names from previous shows Mm -hmm. so this is what he said quote in the telling of the story of the grand council it is sometimes said that lucifer sought to force all men to do good or to live right such a notion finds justification neither in the scriptural text nor in logic the only text that bears on the matter quotes satan saying behold here am i send me i will be thy son i will redeem all mankind that one soul shall not be lost and surely i will do it therefore give me thine honor In that expression, we find Lucifer promising to redeem or save all mankind, but there is no mention of any need to have them live in any particular way. Indeed, if people are forced to do something, the very fact that they have been forced to do it robs the action of any meaning. What meaning could there be in an expression of love giving under duress? What meaning is there in the re-election of a tyrant when he runs unopposed on a ballot that has no place for a negative vote and everyone of voting age is forced to vote? What purpose would be served in making a covenant to live a particular standard when there was no choice to do otherwise. Hmm. In other words, what's the point of earth life? Well, I mean, and then earlier he argues that um, this is why God rejected the plan. Yes, that it just wouldn't work. That it would yield conformity rather than goodness is what the quote was up above. Yes. And I'm not sure that I buy that as a logical framing, right? Because it sounds like which side of the argument do you? Well, not it buy? just sounds a bit like a tautology, right? It's bad because it's bad, right? Why, why? Well, it depends. Like, if the purpose of Earth life is to get a body and that's it, yeah, then it's it's a great plan. The purpose is to save souls. Ah, okay, and that's the whole con- the whole conversation here. You'll see the word "saved" over and over and over again, right? Yes, and that just means returning to live with in the presence of God, right? That's what being saved means right um we so why not force everyone to be good aaron right that's what i'm trying to say where's the logical flaw ah well because can i read you a poem please ah yes (laughs) please (laughs) so this poem is not published yet it's by darlene young it's going to appear in the next issue of iriantum of which i am the editor um the next issue is called the plan and it is all plan of salvation themed there's a lot of Poetry and fiction that does some speculative theology and some other stuff, too. Um, It's really good. But this is by Darlene Young. It's called A Plan of Salvation. You ready? I'm ready. 
She was born healthy and bright to the right family, no trauma, no drama, in a neighborhood healthy and bright, probably white, no trauma, no drama, good clothes, good looks, good music and books, fell in love not too soon, lovely wedding, perfect groom, pleasant little honeymoon, children came healthy and bright, only as often as the parents could afford, they played together, adored their mother and each other, Grew up without trauma, married without drama, to good people, raised right, a delight to their in-laws. And so it proceeded, at just the right pace, well and right, until all that remained was retirement, in a sunny place, not too far from the dear grandchildren, so sweet and polite, healthy and bright, a spot of golf, a cruise or two. And then she was through, dying pleasantly in her sleep. And then... She dragged her milky-weak, underformed spirit limbs into the presence of her god and demanded her money back. Hell no, King Lucifer replied. You got everything right, just what you voted for. Sit. Stay. Fetch. Good girl. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so how, are, how is your spirit supposed to grow if it's forced to do good things, if it never gets to choose, if, it never, if everything is easy or prearranged, like... If there's no opportunity to fail, how do you exercise your spirit and have it grow? Listen, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. Who cares? Why are those important things? Well, do you want to be like God or do you just want to stay hanging out in his doghouse in the, his backyard? But, okay, there's two things. Okay. Is Satan's plan, would it have worked at all? Okay? Sure. Okay. That's and a good question. If you, and if not... Right then, yes. the whole any other conversation is moot because he's an right. idiot. Because he's an idiot. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, if it would have worked, right? Then there's some moral reason not to do it. Okay. So okay, you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. Can I start by arguing that it would not have worked? Yeah. So I think it would not have worked if 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 we define. You said the goal of Earth life is to save souls. Yeah, and to save souls is only to bring them back in the presence of their God. And if Lucifer has decided that all he wants is little um, worshipers and acolytes who will be glad that he brought them back, then the plan of salvation would work fine. If we want people who are on a path to becoming like God the Father and God the Mother, and that's what we consider salvation to be, then you do not gain the strength and skills necessary in earth life in order to be on that path. Instead, you get the sort of heaven that... Uh, you know, where you sit on clouds and you worship God, and in this case, God is Lucifer. This is why the coercion thing doesn't make sense to me in, yeah. ma in many ways, right? Because what, I agree with everything you just said, and it makes Satan look yes. like an idiot, right? Yes. And this is what our author says at the, at the beginning of introducing this section, okay? What he says is... If church members in the 21st century were pulled to respond to the question, an outside majority would probably explain that Satan hoped to coerce the human will. He would force human beings to be good. If a questioner were to wonder aloud why a third part of the host of heavens would be lured to a scheme where morally good souls were imagined as a product of, the, of coercion. Yeah. Okay. Some church members might refine their thought. Perhaps Satan planned to force every person to obey his commandments. Okay. This too would seem to yield conformity rather than goodness. But the presumption in this model was this is why God re rejected Satan's plan. So the problem with the coercion theory 
Is it's dumb. Is it's dumb. Yeah. And <laughs> once I realized, I don't remember, any, I don't have a clear memory of realizing it was dumb, but I think it was because the second most common theory was suggested to me and I realized it made a thousand times more sense in terms of how attractive it is. Okay. Okay. Let's go to the second thing. Okay. Yes. Let's just put a pin in that statement that it's dumb. This is just one way to interpret the argument. Okay? Right. And. And right now, yes. I want to put ourselves in the position of the editors of this journal, right? okay. where our clear thesis statement was not to make a value statement as uh. to which side of the question <laughs> is correct. Okay. Yes. Well, this <laughs> this argument was dumb is a value statement. So let's just think, <laughs> we'll save those for later, right? Well, he gets to use words like uh, illogical and then assign those statements to other people. So he gets away with it. <laughs> okay, great. Um, okay, let's keep going. Okay, shall I give you another metaphor? Please. This, this time it'll be my turn to give an allegory. Okay. So let's say the goal, Aaron, is to live a nice, young, long life, and the only tool we have available to us is diet. All right. And you, the two options, I'm only giving you two options in this thought experiment, is you can have um, a nice vegan lifestyle with nothing but fresh fruits and vegetables and wholesome grains. Mm -hmm. And the other option is um, gummy bears, ice cream. Cotton candy. Yeah. Um, and no matter which one you choose, you will live to be 63. No matter which one? No matter whether you pick the fresh fruits and wholesome grains or you yeah. pick the gummy bears and ice cream. Either way, you live to be 63. And I tell you, the goal here is to use your diet to live a nice long life. The um, Well, first of all, 63 doesn't seem Okay, 93. Whatever. There you go. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter the age, right? Because it's the same no matter what you choose, even though the, that's the goal. Right. So in that case, I would definitely see this is I would definitely pick the gummy bears. <laughs> I would be, it's a sad world without gummy bears. I know people who would pick the fruits and veggies. Oh, I mean, I love fruits and vegetables. I do. But yeah, uh, but but tell but I know when I eat a bowl of ice cream that it isn't helping me long term. Yeah. <laughs> right. So take away that knowledge. Right. Yeah. That I that. um Take away that consequence. Well, I, I'm still. I will still tell you that the right choice yeah. is the fresh fruits and vegetables. That's the right choice. But it doesn't matter which one you choose. You're still going to live to be 93. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Then it wouldn't matter. Who cares? It wouldn't matter. You still get the reward no yeah. matter what you choose. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this is the other view. Right. The removing the consequences instead yes. of the choice at all. Yeah. Okay. I didn't understand this one as well. I'm. I'm going to just say that up front. Um, please walk me through it. Okay, so essentially, Aaron, you get to eat, Wait, drink, and be merry. Don't walk me through what it is. Walk me through the source. Like, why is this scripturally or historically? Oh, well, let me start by the historical one, because this is where I wanted to go earlier. Mm -hmm. So just as we were hearing earlier that Satan is the U.S. government, mm -hmm. and therefore we like this understanding of Satan's plan because the U.S. government is forcing us to do things. Yeah. Brigham Young um, felt differently. Well... Maybe not differently. I'm sure he also felt that way. But in terms of Satan's plan, he liked a different metaphor. Oh, there's not actually a great quotation of Brigham Young. But so here's, here's what it had to say. Brigham Young was worried that with the introduction of zippers and novels and other modern monstrosities, that people might worry too little about law and control. So instead of worrying too much about too much law and control, where the U.S. government is forcing you to do things... Too much control, where you read novels and they pollute your mind, you have zippers which make it too easy to expose yourself. And <laughs> there, uh, you know, it, it's worth laughing at, I, in my opinion. 
Uh, anyway, so we would be too comfortable with these sinful things and with the belief that we could be saved in our sin. We can eat, drink, and be merry, and die, and we will still be saved because, as Orson Pratt said, uh, Satan's agency to destroy the agency of man doesn't need to necessarily take away our options. It just means that our options have no consequences, which is the same thing. You know, I have to say, Bruce R. McConkie's quote made this make more sense to me. Um, can I just... Yeah, no, it was, it was actually my favorite Bruce R. In showing up in our show so far. So, yeah, please. <laughs> 1982. When the Eternal Father announced his plan of salvation, a plan that called for a mortal probation for all his spirit children. So that means here on the earth. Yeah. In a pro like being attested, right? In a probationary state. A plan that required a redeemer to, to ransom men from the coming fall. A plan that could only operate if mortal men had agency. When the Father announced his plan, when he chose Christ as the Redeemer and rejected Lucifer, then there was a war in heaven. That war was a war of words. It was a conflict of ideologies. It was a rebellion against God and his laws. Lucifer sought to dethrone God, to sit himself on the divine throne, and to save all men without reference to their works. He sought to deny men their agency so they could not sin. He offered a mortal life of carnality and sensuality, of evil and crime and murder, following which all men would be saved. His offer was a philosophical impossibility. There must needs be an opposition in all things. Yes, according to Bruce R., Caligula and Mother Teresa cannot be resurrected to the same resurrection, right? But, there has to be a difference. Oh, sure, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like, they can't both be saved equally in the same way. Uh-huh. Um, so but, but what he's arguing is that yeah. Satan's plan was to eliminate sin itself. Yes, there's no such thing as sin. All uh -huh. choices are equally good. You'll be redeemed no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, so, this one doesn't make any sense to me either. To go on. I don't understand how you would do that. <laughs> well, I don't know the uh, physics of eternity, but I think that ultimately we have to decide, given our understanding that Satan's plans cannot work. Or if they can work, they can't work in the way Christ's plan would work, where we are have the potential for exaltation. We just... I think the idea is we just end up, after earth life, resurrected, but without having undergone any growth from our time before we were born. And so we appreciate Lucifer, but we haven't grown. This isn't what I'm trying to say. Oh, okay. These are good words. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that the physics and metaphysics of our universe yeah. are immutable. Okay, that's okay. what I'm trying to say. So you drop a ball, it falls to the ground, right? Okay. You um, you make a bad choice, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And that against the 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 knowledgeably against God's will, right? That's a sin, okay? And that keeps you from God. Yes, it needs to be repented of, atoned for, paid for. But remember, with Satan's plan, we're way. not going back to our heavenly Father. We're only 
Satan be, get, gains the glory and takes the throne. We only go back to him. Is that like the thing I'm missing here? Maybe. Uh, that's, Are you telling me that Satan's plan removes God entirely? That's one of the clearest things that comes from the few scriptures available to us. Hmm. And thinking about it that way makes his plan seem like it could make any sense at all. I mean, it just feels just as speculative as these ideas to begin with. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I I do agree, but I do think that, I mean, mean, the idea that Satan tried to take God's throne is is one of the few statements you can get from scriptures when it comes to the war in heaven. That makes sense. Okay. But of the two things that we've talked about, coercion, which wouldn't work. Yeah. Because you just can't have eternal progression without progression. Sure. Right? And this one where you remove sin. Yeah. Right? Which seems to be a metaphysical reality. Yeah. Both of them just seem dumb. Okay? (laughs) Here's what I mean by dumb. They don't seem possible within the stated metaphysics of this theology. Well, that's what God would want you to believe, Aaron. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> um, Who are you going to believe, God or Satan? I Come on, man. <laughs> I don't know. What I'm trying to understand is that why either of these are philosophies. I mean, yes, they both give us like something to rally against. Yeah. Right. Both the I'm anti-coercion and I'm pro-responsibility. These are both good things to teach children to teach ourselves yeah right? they're good ways to understand um why what satan wanted was wrong right and not wrong in terms of right or wrong wrong in terms of like i'm looking at an cthulhu monstrosity and it <laughs> seems like it breaks the laws of physics yeah wrong uh-huh. right it's like eldritch wrong yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> um so okay let's leave that aside for a second because ultimately we can't solve that problem it's we don't have the scriptural or prophetic information necessary to know for sure what happened before we were born so let's segue perhaps to what both of these theories tell us or or how let me rephrase how what each of these theories suggests about the world we live in now So we've already talked about how the coercion theory leads us to be afraid of coercion. Um, And we have talked a little bit about how the no matter what you do, you'll be saved theory affects the way we think about uh, the choices we make in this life. So which of those is a greater risk to our salvation? Believing that the great threat is being forced to do things or believing that the greater threat is failing to recognize that actions do have consequences. I, I just want to note that <laughs> I just want to complain again. <laughs> Both of these options as statements of Satan's plan that seem to not work <sighs> seem like... Like, your line of of conversation is exactly where I want to go, and I think this is the important part of this lesson. Yeah. Right? Sure. But my brain just is hitting this wall over and over again, like, theologically. Um, And I'm having a hard time moving past it. Mm -hmm. Um, Could... I mean, one of the things... 
that we that that we I don't know that we teach is the right word, but that we noise about, that we understand. One of the characteristics of Satan is that he ain't stupid. <laughs> I I kind of disagree with that. Okay. I've been I've been slowly getting swayed to another position. I think he's really bad at chess. Uh huh. Like uh, I think Satan every time he sees the chance to take your queen will take it. Yeah. Even if he could see a couple moves ahead and see that he has just spelled his doom. I don't think he can see beyond the immediate rewards. I think he is perhaps a little stupid. And that's why he went for these plans that um, just won't work. Because he could see, like, if if we go for this, I'll be great. It's just an interesting change in my mindset, right? Mm-hmm. I always operated under the assumption that Satan was wrong because he was morally wrong. Yeah. Okay? Not under these Because maybe I hadn't he thought... He could be both. Well, maybe... Uh, yeah, sure, but not. I was not hadn't thought as deeply about this. Maybe uh-huh. as, maybe uh, to have arrived at this this point, that Satan was wrong because he was morally wrong. Yeah, and not because he was wrong because it would just never have worked, right? I I feel like maybe those lead to each other, because if we're trying to set up a moral universe where where morality, like if morality is governed by laws, then something that is morally wrong will not work. All right, fair enough, but that did seem a bit tautological. <laughs> it, sure. I mean, some things are tautological, ultimately. <laughs> like, these are our, our basic assumptions, right? Yeah, I mean, we did have our in our, our cold open episode four years ago. Mm-hmm. We talked about um, geometry, right? And what are some of the axioms yes. that we build upon, right? And Axiom the, was the wordle was the, two days ago. Was the wordle two days ago. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> For those of you listening in the past. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, we, there are some axioms and one is morality. One is God's love. You know, these are yeah. things that we're not going to debate. Right. And I think one of them might be that a moral universe has moral laws and breaking those laws means things just don't work. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting there. Before you jump though, is there anything in this other options thing that you want to call out before you t- go to yes. implication? Actually, I think that. The other options and implications are inseparable. Okay. And honestly, uh, it's really pushing the bounds of fair use, but I have nothing against just reading both of these sections in their entirety. Oh, like just aloud? Yeah, because I just think they're that wonderful. All right. I know you're the one who usually reads long quotations, but um, I'm I'm a big fan of these two sections. And they're not that long. Okay. Think of this... um, Seven paragraphs between the two. Think of this, dear listener, as your um, Sunday school lesson where... You're going around the room and you are reading sections of this lesson and you're talking about them, right? Yes. Um, it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is an approved mechanism of, of, of work. Or you can think of it as uh, the Sunday school teacher just called on Philip Barlow and he's the guy who gives way too long of comments. <laughs> you're like, is he going to be done in time to give the, uh, for the closing prayer? Like, Okay. Comprehending that both... Of the predominant theories accounting for Satan's assault on agency are reasoned and expanded from cryptic strands of scripture. Okay. In other words, understanding that these things are derived doctrine, these two doctrines. Yes, from scripture that isn't super, super that's, clear that, that's, in the first place. That's cryptic. As well as historical, which shown to emerge and evolve over time. So these are the teachings of the prophets which right. have changed. They may be born from scriptures, but they have evolved due to historical forces. Yeah. 
This makes room for one to notice other possible explanations, historical or imagined, that have gained less public traction. Awareness of these alternate conceptions may, in turn, broaden how believing Latter-day Saints or their observers choose to conceive and protect their agency. Might the core of the satanic challenge to agency, for instance, lie in valuing security more than freedom, as with Dostoevsky's famous Grand Inquisitor? Okay, I want to stop at each one of these question marks. Okay, because they're each really good. Okay. That, that's one I think about a lot. And it's one that, um, it's something that a strong man authoritarian offers, right? Mm -hmm. Give me your freedom and I will keep you safe from, you know, rapists crossing the border or drug cartels or the refugees from another nation. Like whatever the imagined danger is at that historical moment, the strong man will protect you if you give him his freedom, give him your freedom. So what is Dostoevsky's famous Grand Inquisitor? So that's from um, Crime and Punishment. Uh, which I've not read. Mm, I well. keep I keep buying copies, <laughs> like the, not buying copies, but I, I have like five or six copies of this novel because I really want to read it because uh -huh. I really like Dostoevsky and I really think it's going to be one of my favorite novels. And because I'm have like my expectations are you've so built, high, I'm afraid to up. start it. You've I'm afraid to start up. it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, basically, the Grand Inquisitor is um, well, that's that's what he is, right? He's he's um, sort of like think of the Spanish Inquisition. Think okay. of this as the Russian version of that, and he's uh, asking questions as in like deep moral important questions and apparently one of them is like do you value your security more or your freedom would you trade your freedom uh for salvation right this right valuing security more than freedom so this is kind of like the coercion thing but it's kind of. different because We've also it's just kind of seeding choices without really re realizing it. it's also worth pointing out that all of these theories have a divine as well as a demonic spin so coercion is kind of like obeying the commandments, right? Yeah. And it's the uh, whirlpool of the conversation. Yeah, and uh, being saved, in, no matter what our sins, is kind of like grace. Mm -hmm. And in this case, um, valuing security more than freedom, sa sacrificing your freedom for security, is kind of like um, uh, what, how's the primary song go? Or no, not the primary song. It's the Christina Rossetti poem, but it show it's like a popular Christmas song. Like, what can I give him? Give him my heart. Um, like this idea that we have nothing to give God but our agency, and so let's give Him our agency for salvation. Like this is I've yeah, heard not, that not a lot. Not my will, but Thy will be. Yeah, done. exactly. So there's always like a divine version of each of these demonic options, and and navigating this is we've talked about paradox a lot, but navigating this paradox, whichever one of these accounts you find most persuasive, doesn't even matter. Like they're all useful in terms of navigating like what is a value here and what is not a value, and because we've, I have come out as kind of a universalist on this show, but I would not want to be accused of believing Satan's plan, like the second version of Satan's plan, where everybody gets saved no matter what. I think it has to be more complicated than that. Because that is, like as you said, a demonic form of universalism is yes. the, uh, the second theory. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. Remind me at the end of the show to talk about the cube, okay? Oh, okay. Cube. Yeah, the cube. I, I will work on remembering that. Okay. All right, next question, Aaron. Okay. Or might the challenge be grounded in fear, ignorance, deceit, or manipulation more than in force? So here, why is it citing Moses 4.4? 4? I meant to look that up before we started talking. And no, I did not. Why don't we just Google it? Search Google for Moses 4.4. 4. I'll get there first. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, Got it. And uh, oh, simultaneously. simultaneously. And he became Satan, yea, even the devil, 
the father of all lies, to deceive and blind men, and to lead them captive to his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. So there's the captivity yeah. point about um, the world, you know, using the whirlpool analogy, you're captive to the whirlpool because you made a choice. Right? Yeah. So um, lies, deceit, right? This is a limit of agency, which is the an- ignorance. Sure. If there is no whirlpool, that sign will still keep me out of the water. And you could kind of argue that there's a lot of this have happened in the past with um, apostasy and with um, propaganda yeah. and things like that. All of these things remove agency because they take away the knowledge of the choice as a possibility. Yeah, I think true agency requires good information mm-hmm. and fear, ignorance, deceit, manipulation. Those things prevent us from having good information. Yeah, the truth truth will set you free. Yeah. Eric, uh, Returning who... to Brother Bar, though. Okay. Might such deceit take the form not only of delusion about responsibility, but of confusion over sheer facts? A profound problem reflected in the modern world's discounting of a free, independent, and competent press, for example, and of professional expertise generally. What better way has history taught us to control the actions of men and women than to limit the information available to them so that the need to choose never enters their minds, or, in the event that it does, proceeds as to obscure all but the desired options? That last sentence, by the way, Barlow is quoting Gerald R. Izzat, who was published in Dialogue back in 1994. Um, so I think this is a, this is where I think I was enjoying the article before this, and the last paragraph and a half were exciting me. But this part that I just read really excited me because I realized that in a way we're missing an opportunity by not spending more time considering what exactly Satan's plan was. Because just like John Taylor saw Satan's plan in the U.S. government and Brigham Young saw it in uh, Zippers, um, we can see it in a lot of the issues we have today. Um, whether that's, um, well, he's going to go on and give us some more examples in the next paragraph, but the way that one of the best ways to prevent people from getting good information in 2022 is to give them so much information of every kind that they can't find what's relevant or important. And that is... I don't know exactly how that translates into Satan may have proposed this, but it is another way of removing agency through manipulating our access to information that is useful and good. I mean, in some ways it is, uh, and I want to be careful when I say this, um, which sounds like I'm going to be more inflammatory than I'm going to be. Um, the auto scroll, the infinite yes, scroll, infinite scroll, infinite scroll is um, one of the biggest and most nefarious, like, I think, inventions recently. And forgive me for my editorializing there. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And uh, on, part so, of on social it, media specifically. Part of what makes it so terrible is that we like it. We love it. Yeah. Yeah. Just scroll down a little bit more. Eh, just a little bit more. Just yeah. a little bit more. Next paragraph is yours. Might well-meaning people in either secular or religious contexts be complicit in eroding agency when their efforts towards coordination devolve into micromanagement and censorship? Or when a culture... Oh, there's a question mark there. We should stop. There is. And I I love this one too, right? Like, once again, something that is good, coordinating, can turn into removing people's small choices or their access to information. Micromanagement and censorship. Mm -hmm. A good goal can result in in a negative consequence, a demonic consequence. I mean, you can argue that censorship erodes agency, right? Absolutely, it does. You could also argue that hate speech is bad. Yes, both these things can be true simultaneously. Yeah. 
And as a culture, that's one of the things we have to figure out how to navigate. It kind of feels a bit like the divine and demonic argument. It is, all over again. Information removal um, can be good or bad. Um, I mean, there are lots of people that would argue that any censorship at all, yeah. of any form, I used to believe that is bad. And then those people now have to go moderate a a, a forum. Will yes. find <laughs> that that's not true. <laughs> yeah, and especially when it comes to people who are young, right? Like not at the age of accountability or or still growing up. And and um, one of the things that I find most irritating is when people try to ban books. Um, and prevent children from reading things. But on the other hand, that's the time when it makes the most sense also. It's really hard. Next comment. Or when a culture spawns gratuitous complexity and an ongoing multiplication of rules and laws rather than, as Joseph Smith preferred, a people who govern themselves after embracing correct principles. One of the things I love about these paragraphs is um, just when you think that this is promoting an American liberal standpoint, we get this American libertarian standpoint. Yeah, small government. <laughs> yes. Um, and honestly, it's it's very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, all these things are good. Oh, did you hear? Mm. California, we just uh, passed a law. It's no longer illegal to jaywalk. Oh. You can use your own judgment and yeah. your application of correct principles. Uh, might, okay, why don't you go? Might the satanic reach to destroy agency have included a design to preempt full evolutionary development of life on Earth, thereby purchasing freedom from higher order suffering, deliberate evil, and existential angst at the expense of reconstructing to pre-human levels the dimensions of intelligence, self-consciousness, reason, imagination, agency, and growth? This one was wild. Yes. What if it all been stuck in Australopithecus bodies? <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to not have any agency. It's just to take the brain yeah. bit, just a few steps back. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, what a fascinating idea. It's a good idea, and I'm glad that it was included. Also, the plan of salvation goes a lot faster, right? If we'd all just been in bacteria, this could have been done <laughs> billions of years ago. All right. <laughs> or might Lucifer have it? Or might Lucifer have agitated for a world where the, quote, veil, quote, over human consciousness and memory, to which Joseph Smith alluded, was rendered indefinitely transparent. So here he's referring to the fact that we don't remember our pre-mortal lives. Yeah, right? what if we did? What it if we did? It would change our motivations. It would change our motivations. It's like um, it would validate faith because you would not be able to have yeah, faith. Yeah, there would be no such thing. Because would, you would only have knowledge. Yeah, he has a nice little metaphor here. Perhaps with God and the divine realm irrefutably before us, such a world would allow a constricted agency analogous merely to that of a teenager out on the town with friends and a date with his or her parents in tow. <laughs> yes. Sitting in the back seat, watching everything. <laughs> These are all interesting ways to understand agency because they are real. Right, and they, they make us realize that some of the threats... Except for the evolution one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't really go back to that. Um, <laughs> okay, go ahead. But, yeah, it, it makes us realize, like, if we're only worried about the coercion, then that limits the kind of threats to our agency that we're worried about. Reducing the breadth of the war in heaven's potential metaphorical meanings means that we worry about fewer kinds of removals of agency. And opening up the argument that the war in heaven may have been about other ways of preventing agency 
makes us realize that our agency is actually being attacked in other ways that are less analogous to how we currently understand the war in heaven. And maybe we'd be more worried about it then. Implications. This historicizing of the two dominant understandings of Satan's attempt to destroy agency, coupled with a sampling of alternatives to them, suggests that a constellation of historical and potential strategies might be proposed as candidates for the erosion of human agency. This matters because the ways in which believers conceive the mode of satanic opposition dictate the threats they envision for purposes of defense and prevention. The popular Latter-day Saint deductive models of Satan's pre-existent plan often lack historical context. Or, yes, I would agree with this. I am rarely, if ever, until now, aware of the historical pressures on us arriving at these theories for the war in heaven. I don't think I was aware of that before reading this article. The two prime theories. Right, the two prime theories. Mm -hmm. I was not aware that um, Satan was considered analogous to the U.S. government, for instance. Like, that is useful information as I consider that theory in the future. Yeah, and the co that's the coercion, right? Right, that's the coercion strategy. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, so... Just read that sentence again. Yeah, then. so Latter-day Saints are... Uh, we often lack the historical context and are scarcely aware that these... Um, therefore, that these deductive models of Saints' pre-existent plan are being... are speculative. And this lack of awareness may bring unintended consequences. This is particularly true of the overwhelming focus on perceived coercion that intensified in Western countries and among church members during the Second World War and the anti-communist rage that followed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's, I feel like I'm having some blinders removed. Yeah. Scales falling from your eyes. Yeah. Like a lot of... Um, the ways we behave as members of the church, especially in the ways that we behave en masse, I realize are really affected by historical pressures that were... I mean, I am aware that we didn't get on with the U.S. government, but I haven't ever really thought about how that might still affect our behavior and our beliefs today. Coercion is bad because it's Satan's plan? Yes. Echoes. Yes, for sure. Through the church. And not that I'm now coming out pro-coercion yeah. or, or like love the, you know, Soviet Russia or something. That's, that's, that's not the point. But the point is that we were worried about specific threats as opposed to all the threats because of this, this narrow focus. Let's go ahead and finish it off. And then we will, maybe, maybe we can talk about it. Yeah. In the 21st century, this legacy has evolved, prompting some citizen saints especially in the American West, to equate communism with evil. To equate evil communism with socialism. And to construe any governmental initiative for the public good as socialism. Therefore, as coercive... We just say? Satanic. <laughs> so any public good as socialism, therefore coercive... Therefore, yeah. satanic. Anything because communism engaged in coercion, it was satanic, mm -hmm. and therefore, uh, and because communism is supposed to be a kind of socialism, therefore, socialism is satanic, and because any government program that intends to help people is socialism, any government program intended to help people is therefore satanic. Many American church members selectively retain this mindset even as they cash their social security checks 
or send their children to public schools. Such an elegant burn. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Resistance to some forms of compulsion may be reasonable, necessary, and even noble in certain circumstances. But exaggerating and demonizing one sort of threat, as you were just saying, as did McCarthyism and the John Birch Society, to choose examples <laughs> at a safe historical remove. I love that he just says, this is a safe historical remove, so you can't be mad at me, as if that were, as if that works. Uh, I, I, I have to believe there are people who get BYU studies in the mail who are outraged by this paragraph. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you mid-sentence. Um, so, um, demonizing one sort of threat risks transmogrifying right to wrong while ignoring more immediate and plausible threats. As the embodiment of evil, a Satan imagined as obvious and hell-bent solely on tyranny presents a naive and dangerous image. It is wise to understand one's enemies. Yay! Good work! Oh my gosh. Brother Barlow! It is so good. I'm so... I'm, like, this essay is, like, brilliant. Um, and and not just... I, I, I will admit that I am doing probably what anyone could do and we all do all the time when we're thinking politically is like is like see something that says oh people are being naive and misunderstanding stuff and for me to therefore say it's other people not me oh yeah i'm sure that i'm sure that i am making the exact same errors but i can't see them um there are things which i undoubtedly am not as worried about as perhaps i should be yep because of my own blind spots mm -hmm. uh but i love that he's taking a kind of weird, esoteric, like, oh, isn't it funny that Mormons believe this sort of thing? Um, tiny bit of doctrine, which is not clearly understood, barely canonical, and showing us that we have accepted such a narrow application of these ideas with such thoroughness of certainty that it has essentially performed Satan's work for him. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. And that's, it is wise to understand one's enemies. Yeah. In, in other words. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I can say that is better than what has been said here. I, I agree 100% that I didn't see this. I mean, generational trauma in the LDS church, yeah. I think, is a real thing. Okay? Oh, it is. I think... For sure it is. Especially... In America. Right? And um, this idea of, you know, persecution in the old times and, um, I mean, maybe even talking about it here is perpetuating it a bit. But, you know, there's a, I guess there's a difference between history and therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, these, these, these things that happened to us and how they've kind of changed our doctrine in this kind of way. Right, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, what a great, what a great article. When we started this, "Open Questions in Latter Day Saint Theology" is the mm -hmm. subtitle of this issue of BYU Studies, mm -hmm. and I assumed we would largely be getting fun bits of trivia to talk about. Yeah, I didn't really anticipate that we would end up being forced to reckon with our own um, failures to live righteously because of trivia. And and I really feel called to repentance mm -hmm. by this uh, essay. Not that I feel that I'm doing terrible at it. I, I feel like I'm, I try hard to be aware of these things. 
but I feel that I now have um, a more theological grounding for why I feel it's important to worry about these things. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Fantastic article. And I'm really glad that we that we did it. It's okay that it didn't have as many angels with swords <laughs> as I was hoping. Maybe next time. <laughs> when it got to such a, a great conclusion. And by that and by great conclusion, I mean as you say, stunning and kind of like makes me nervous about myself and wants me to re examine some of the things. Yeah. Um, I did have one other analogy I wanted to Is this present. the cube? This is the cube okay. I mentioned before. And again, I want to... Th- is it a good place to close? I think so. Okay, then let me let me just plug again. I think Aaron is going to get this episode edited and up before I get the latest issue of Ariantum edited and up. But yeah. I really want to like promote the latest issue. Um, it's going to be poetry and uh, short stories and one work of criticism about the plan of salvation. And there's some speculative theology if you're into that. And there's also some... Uh, there's a couple things where people are just living their lives and dealing with... How, like, how does this idea of moving from a pre-Earth life to a post-Earth life, how does that affect us? There's some science fiction. we got some all, all sorts of good things. So understanding agency seems hard, okay? Yep. And how um, Heavenly Father wants us to have agency versus Satan and how we can navigate it seems hard. And it looks like there are many different ways to approach it, okay? And part of me... Um, rebels any time that there's ambiguity when I want certainty. Okay? Yes. Okay? Now, I one time called my dad up. Okay? okay? And I asked him, I don't understand the atonement. Okay? And the this, was, this would have been about, I want to say, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Because I've been thinking a lot about it. Yeah. Sometimes the atonement is taught using the analogy of debt. Sure. That's the Packers. Elder Packers. Mediator. The mediator. So much suffering for so much sin. Yeah. There's a hymn. How many drops of blood were shed for thee? Yeah. Right? And um, I think written by Fast. Very finite. Right? It's a very, it's a numerical amount. Yeah. And it's a good analogy. Yeah. It has its use for sure. But it doesn't work when you start thinking about, like, real problems like murder. (laughs) (laughs) And so parts of the scriptures, they talk about an infinite tone. Yes. Right? Which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to understand. The question was, which is it? Is it a finite suffering? Or so much suffering for so much sin? Or is it this weird infinite thing that is so hard to understand? That's what my dad's response was. He said, think of a cube that casts a shadow. Mm-hmm. All right. Sometimes you'll turn it in one way and you'll see a hexagon. Sometimes you'll turn it another way and you'll see... Oh, a... it's a transparent dish cube. Nope, it's a shadow cast on a wall. Okay. Oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, you okay. Can actually I can, turn I'm it visualizing in... it now. Yeah, yes. yeah. You I can was see a square. Their, I was forgetting cubes have three dimensions. They do have three dimensions. <laughs> you can see a square. You can see a, you can see a hexagon, right? You can... You can kind of position it in different ways to make shapes. Yeah. And all of those shapes would help you understand the cube. But none of them are the cube. Yeah. Right? And so um, that one has always stuck with me. It's really good. And um, I think the same thing is, is applicable here, right? These are all different ways to understand agency and the past, right? Yeah. And some of them have 
real consequences, right? And we've got to just, um, we, we just got to talk about it, try to get a synthesis of things going. You know, as we're talking, I'm realizing that one of the big themes of our show is it's okay not to have certainty about things. It's okay to live in ambiguity and that um, religion happens there too and faith happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, and our conversation today makes me realize that, well, I completely 100% believe what I just said. That certainty is not the only path forward and sometimes it's even dangerous. Ambiguity is important. There is danger also in being too comfortable with ambiguity because it it allows you to never push through to solid answers. Um, so yeah, we, we have, there's there's always you know the cube on the wall. I like that a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. We're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. Indeed we are. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter for now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Aaron Brewster. I'm still at Amazing. And our show is at Face and Hat. Uh, thank you um, very much for listening along with us. Our music is by Daniel Foster Smith. And um, dang, I love this article. Yeah. This, I love this journal. Don't miss this, the show notes. This has been super fun. Yeah, lots of stuff in the show notes. Faceandhat.com. Um, where are we going from here? We haven't decided. Um, I did propose an alternate for this one. Um, I don't remember what it was. What's Christmassy to you? We could, you know what? Yeah. Christmas is about Jesus being born. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking we would end up doing this, but what about Jesus getting married for Christmas? Oh. <laughs> it should so. be it should be a short episode, I imagine. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. I enough. mean, we could be wrong. maybe it'll be maybe it'll blow our minds, but um, there's an there's a question: Was Jesus married? Maybe for Christmas we should answer that question once and for all <laughs> by not answering it. <laughs> it's been always that one has always felt to me like one that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, to me it hasn't mattered, but I do have an anecdote about someone to whom it mattered a lot. Okay, which I will share if we if we do that. I'm ready to be proven wrong about that one, as I have so many times on the show. All right, <laughs> bye, Eric. See you later.